Hi, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. There's one episode left after this one in this current series based on my book, Watch. So, in the next and final episode of this series, I'll be making some programming announcements. For now, I want to let you know that if you become a regular listener of the Called Out Cafe, that probably the best way to learn of new episodes and keep up with what I'm doing is by being on my email list. I do not give or sell your email address to anyone. I wouldn't even know how to go about selling it to anyone. The only time I've ever sent out ministry-related emails is when I publish something new like a book, blog, video, or podcast. I might occasionally make an announcement of a new project, so you won't be receiving emails from me every day. I've went months without using the list. Anyway, if you want to get on the list, please email me at doug at doughooley.com. I want to take another quick minute to talk about my, quote, ministry, unquote. Using that word is actually something I think about a lot. There are things that people associate with that word that I worry about people will associate with me when I use it. The reason I say I have a ministry is because I believe that the elect followers of Jesus are all considered to what the Bible calls priests. As priests, we all have some sort of ministry. I talked about these various ministries in the last podcast. Some minister as parents who put food on the table and raise their children in the knowledge of our great God. Others minister at work by maintaining an unnatural fruit-of-the-spirit-like cool in the presence of a boss, co-worker, or customer who's a real jerk. <laughs> I won't go over everything again I talked about last week. My ministry has taken on the form of multimedia teaching. I do podcasts, produce videos, teach Bible studies, occasionally speak, write books, and even occasionally compose and perform original songs from time to time. The main thing I don't like about calling what I do a ministry is because typically people think I'll be asking them to support it. And what I mean by support it specifically is asking for money to support it. I'm worried that people might think that I'm trying to profit off the Lord. Well, I want you to know that I have never asked anyone for money to support my ministry, and I never intend on doing so. Don't ever feel like I'm even implying that you should. God has provided a decent retirement income for Angela and I that we are both very appreciative of. We take care of the expenses associated with what I do out of that income. If the day comes that there's no longer enough money to support what I do because of a downturn in the economy or something, or if my health becomes of such a burden that I'm no longer able to do what I'm doing, I'll take it as a sign that I shouldn't be doing it anymore. I will stop doing what I am doing way before I would ever ask you for money. You are my eternal family in Christ my brothers and sisters, not my benefactors. I don't want to be thought of as that able-bodied brother who's moved into your basement that can't provide for himself. And personally, I'm not convinced that giving money because you've been edified by something someone else has done for you in the name of Jesus is a natural response. It seems more of a church culture programmed response. However, if you feel blessed by what God is using me to do, and you want to express your appreciation by sending me money, please give it to someone else instead who is in need. Don't get me wrong, I do sell books and I accept payment for them. 
but I'm not even asking that you buy one of those. Even that, you know, I still have a few thousand <laughs> left to sell before I'd even break even, and I don't anticipate that happening. So today, if you have been blessed by what I'm doing, a way that you can help and be a part of it is by, besides remembering me in your prayers, through doing things like becoming a follower on my podcast on Podbean, or my Facebook account, or my Twitter page, or YouTube page, or by clicking the like button on any one of those things. Maybe most importantly is recommending the podcast or videos to others who you think would be blessed by them. Those things all help to promote what I'm doing and spread what I think is an important message. It moves what I'm publishing ahead in the search engine so more people can find them. But you know what? Even that is in God's hands. So enough of all that. My daughter Rachel, her husband, and my three beautiful grandchildren lived in the house next door for years. They moved a short distance away about a year ago to another small farm. Now, Rachel is a health-minded, do-it-yourself, recovering 4-H club member. She ferments teas in closets, pickles things that once grew in her organic garden, and collects various amounts of eggs every day from her free-range chickens. If not for Rachel, there would have been no sheep or goats in our field in recent years. Well, sure, I learned things from the pigs my other two kids raised on our farm also. But if not for the sheep and goats in our field, I don't believe I'd be as in touch with the numerous sheep and goat references found in the Bible. For those who haven't been lucky enough to have had the experience, sheep and goats are different from one another, and not only in appearance. There are exceptions, but sheep like being a part of the flock. It's easier to keep them inside of a fence than it is to keep goats inside. Goats are the first ones to find a weak spot in the fence and escape. They are curious and independent thinkers. They can be a real challenge to like or even keep from turning them into goat burger, especially if it's you chasing them through your blueberry field they're ravaging, trying to catch them after they've escaped their enclosure. Sheep, on the other hand, like lying about the field looking like a part of some 19th century romantic period pastoral painting. Goats like to climb on your neatly stacked woodpile, knock it over, and eat the tarp that was covering it. Sheep keep your grass neatly mowed and fertilized. Goats eat your wife's Gravenstein apple tree that you bought for Mother's Day. I believe Jesus well understood the differences between sheep and goats, and that's why he used them as symbols while making his final comments to his disciples during the Olivet Discourse. Jesus begins his Olivet Discourse by speaking of watching and warnings, and he ends it by speaking of judgment. He's already spoken of judging between good and wicked servants and sorting out the wise and the foolish, quote, virgins, unquote. The servants in Jesus' parables represent these two categories, his true followers and those who are Christian in name only. The parable of the ten virgins spoke about judging amongst the descendants of Israel who will be found ready to meet their Messiah. This will come as a surprise to many, but this final parable we're going to talk about is a judgment of yet another group. This last parable starts off more direct than the previous two. This is from Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon his throne of glory. Let's just start there. 
Many passages describe the second coming of Jesus to be one of glory and judgment, like in Matthew 16, 27, 16, or let's see, 26, 64, Mark 8, 38, and Luke 9, 26. Also, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. And, you know, for those of you who are taking notes, Jude 1, 14 to 15, and Revelation 1, chapter 7. All about the glory of his coming. There'll be many things that take place when Jesus returns to the earth. One of the events that will take place is the judgment of those who are still alive on the earth just before the millennial kingdom of Jesus begins. Earlier in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus spoke of his glorious coming, which takes place just after the sign of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the great earthquake. His coming will be like lightning flashing from the east. He returns with his angels, who will be sent forth to gather the elect. Now we see Jesus taking a seat on his throne. This is at a time when he's made his enemies his, quote, footstool, unquote. The following psalm is referred to several times in the New Testament as a prophecy that will one day be fulfilled at the second coming of the Messiah. It speaks of a coming time of the judgment of all nations. Here it is. This is from Psalms 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. The final event of the nations becoming the footstool of Jesus is the Battle of Armageddon. This battle ends when the Antichrist and his chief false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. And when the rest of those who have gathered to meet Jesus in battle are killed by the very words of Jesus. You can see Revelation chapter 16 verses 14 to 16 and chapter 19 verses 11 to 21 to get the details of that. Following this battle, we see Satan bound and cast into hell for a thousand years, where he won't be able to influence the nations during that period of time. Once the last enemy, Satan, has been bound and cast into hell, the sheep and goats judgment spoken of in this final Olivet Discourse prophecy will take place. It's a very specific judgment. Several passages of Scripture indicate that today, as I write this, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father until such time as the enemies of Jesus will be put down during the day of the Lord. Once the day of the Lord has come, the nations will be judged. This judgment is not to be confused with another judgment, which has been referred to as the Great White Throne Judgment. That takes place at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, which that period is also known as the Millennial Period. Well, I've referred to it here and there throughout this podcast, but what is the millennial period? The millennial period is a thousand-year period 
that follows the Great Tribulation. It's a time during which Jesus will reign over this present planet Earth from his temple in a newly rebuilt Jerusalem. It's during that time that many of the promises made to national Israel will come to be. Eternity begins and history ends at the end of the millennial kingdom of Christ. A thorough study of all that happens during the millennium is kind of outside the scope of this book. But for now, let's just take a look at where this period of time, uh, the idea of it even comes from. The thousand-year period of time is chiefly based on the following scripture from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. Here we go. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Once again, that's in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. A careful study of Revelation chapter 20 indicates that there will be two separate judgments in the future that concern unbelievers. There will also be a judgment of the righteous, sometimes referred to as the Bema Seat Judgment. Concerning the judgment of the unbelievers, there's a judgment I just mentioned found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 7, and the great white throne judgment. Those two judgments are separated by the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. The great white throne judgment, or the second judgment, is described in this passage. This is from Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Same chapter, a little bit later, a separate judgment. Here we go. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We see the first judgment, the one that we'll call the sheep and goats judgment, occur at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. Then, at the end of the millennial period, 
the great white throne judgment takes place. With two exceptions, the great white throne judgment is for all of those who have died ever since the beginning of time. That will include those who died during the future 1,000-year reign of Christ. Considering every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth, the two groups who will not be judged before the great white throne will be the elect of God, who were raptured a thousand years earlier, and already found to be worthy of eternal life by being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The second group will be those who have already been judged at the sheep and goats judgment that takes place at the end of the tribulation period, just before the millennial reign of Christ begins. Since we're on the topic of judgment, Scripture describes a third judgment for those who are, quote, saved, unquote, through being purchased by the blood of Jesus. This group will have already been declared righteous and been granted eternal life. The thing in store for them that resembles a judgment will be what's described in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5. Here are those two passages. First, the Romans one. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set at not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. Here's the 2 Corinthians passage. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. This judgment is reflected in the Olivet Discourse parables concerning the servants of Jesus. For example, because one servant was faithful with some, he was put in charge with more and invited to enter into the joy of the Lord. Although there's no way to earn your way into heaven, keeping in mind the parable of the talents we talked about last time, because of this judgment, we know that how you spend the talents Jesus has entrusted to you, will somehow follow you into the next age. Let's move on. This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 to 33. And all people will be gathered before him, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he shall place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The simplest interpretation of this passage might be to say that Christ will come in judgment and separate those who deserve eternal life from those who don't. That simple interpretation is not correct. The sheep and goats judgment represented in this passage only involves the people who have survived the day of the Lord judgments and remain alive on the earth at the end of the tribulation period, just before the millennial kingdom begins. Those that are found worthy during this sheep and goats judgment will remain alive as normal human inhabitants of the earth during the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus. The second judgment, the great white throne judgment, will take place at the end of the thousand-year period. That judgment will involve the judgment of the dead who were not resurrected at the second coming, you know, the unsaved, those who die during the millennial kingdom, and those who live until the end of the millennial kingdom. Lifespans are going to be greatly increased. There will be new babies born during the millennial kingdom, 
Those people, along with the rest, will all be judged during the great white throne judgment, again, at the end of the millennial kingdom of Christ. A few podcasts back, we examined two different harvests. The gathering of the nations for the sheep and goats judgment is separate and different than the gathering of the elect, which will have taken place just prior to the beginning of the day of the Lord. The sheep and goats judgment will include a gathering that takes place just after, quote, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, unquote. That's found in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Here's the whole verse. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, that's Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It would not make any sense for a king to take his throne in judgment prior to establishing his kingdom. The kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, just after God's wrath has been poured out on the earth. There's much that takes place on the earth between the time Jesus rescues or raptures his followers and when his kingdom on earth is proclaimed. A third of the earth is burned. A giant mountain of fire plunges into the sea. A giant asteroid slams into the earth. Stinging locusts are released from the pits of hell. The Day of the Lord judgments conclude with the infamous Battle of Armageddon, during which Jesus puts the last of his enemies under his feet. By the time the Battle of Armageddon takes place, who will be left on the earth to be judged? The elect of God will have previously been gathered together and will be safely tucked away, or at least with Him. The same will be true of the sons of the kingdom, the 144,000 descendants of Israel, who will have been miraculously protected by God through the day of the Lord's judgments. The prophet Isaiah says that during the time in question, God will make people rarer than fine gold. You can read that in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 12. Most, if not all, who gathered on the plains of Armageddon will have perished. The wrath of God being poured out on the earth will have ended the lives of the majority of its human populations. So, who besides the 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel will have survived the judgments of God and be left to judge? Well, here's some kind of morbid math for you. Conservatively, using the death toll numbers provided in prophecy as they would apply to today's population level, at least 4.5 billion people will have died or been raptured in less than a seven-year period of time. I'll go ahead and take the time here to uh, explain to you the reasoning behind that statement. On March 12, 2012, the United States Census Bureau estimated that the world's population exceeded 7 billion people. According to Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, when the fourth seal of the scroll containing God's will is broken by Jesus, a rider named Death rides out on a pale horse with the authority to kill a quarter of the world's population. If there are 7 billion people on the earth at that time, there would be about five and a quarter billion survivors after this rider of the pale horse completes his mission. According to the Pew Research Center in 2010, there were an estimated 2.18 billion people in the world that called themselves Christians. 
assuming that a quarter of them die along with the rest of the world's population as a result of the fourth seal being opened, that would leave about 1.6 billion people who claim to be Christians. Now, there's no way for us to judge the hearts of those who claim to be Christians to determine who is actually a Christian and who is a Christian in name only. Remember, there will be a great falling away from the faith during that tribulation period of time. However, I will make a large, baseless assumption that about half of those who claim to be Christians are Christians in name only. God only knows that number. That would mean about 800 million true followers of Christ will be alive on earth at the time of his second coming. After this, 800 million would be gathered to Jesus at the rapture of the church. Again, remember, I'm not trying to say who is a Christian and who's not and who's worthy of being raptured. That's just a a total guess based on today's numbers. But there would still be around 4.5 billion inhabitants left on the earth after the... uh, the judgments that have already taken place, or the, they're not judgments, but the, the events of the seals of uh, Revelation take place and the rapture take place. Still about four and a half billion inhabitants on the earth. Then an unprecedented science-defying earthquake that will move every mountain from its place on the planet will accompany the second coming of Jesus. This earthquake will trigger mass tidal waves cities will be leveled. According to the United States Geological Survey, 2,319,716 people have died in earthquakes between 1900 and 2014. That's only counting the number of people who have died in earthquakes that have killed over 1,000 people at a time. One earthquake in Haiti in 2010 killed over 316,000 people alone. There's no way of telling how many people would die in such a massive worldwide earthquake. So limiting the death toll to 10% seems very conservative. 450 million people dying in that earthquake would leave 4.05 billion survivors on the planet. Now once the rapture of the church has taken place, as God's wrath is poured out, now we get to God's wrath, right? Not the, the natural circumstances of uh, plague and famine, those kind of things that we've seen throughout history. But now God's wrath, as that's poured out, there are several enormously horrific events uh, that occur as the first five trumpets are blown by angels in heaven. And that's talked about in Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 to chapter 9, verse 12. These events will result in a widespread death on the earth. However, there's no specific death toll numbers mentioned in the Bible related to most of these judgments. It would be impossible to accurately estimate the impact on human life, but it will be great. As the sixth trumpet is blown in Revelation, four angels are released to kill, quote, a third of mankind, unquote. Read about that in Revelation chapter 9, verses 15 to 18. A third of 4.05 billion would leave approximately 2.67 billion left living on the earth. The amazing thing is that even after all this, with about 62% of the world's population having perished, the 38% that remain will refuse to repent and turn to God. 
It's estimated that there are currently over 49.6 million people involved in active and reserved military duty in the world today. If they've been subject to the same levels of casualties as the rest of the world's population, that would leave about 25 million of them throughout the entire world using today's numbers that could end up making it through to the end of the tribulation period. Serving as a great warning against only relying on what we know to be true today, Revelation chapter 9 verse 16 indicates that there will be significantly more people involved in the military at the end of the age. An army of 200 million to be exact. When that entire army alone perishes at the Battle of Armageddon, there will be under 2.5 billion inhabitants that will possibly remain on the earth. I told you this was going to be some morbid math. Well, there is no way to know how many survivors there will be. What I just did for you, I believe to be a pretty conservative estimate. But this disturbing conservative estimate only serves to illustrate the likelihood that there will still be a significant number of survivors left on the earth following the outpouring of God's wrath. This large group of people are the ones that will be quote, sorted out, unquote, at the sheep and goats judgment. Scripture strongly supports the idea that there will be mortal human beings walking the face of the earth after the wrath of God has taken place and the millennial kingdom of Christ has been established. We already know that the 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel will inhabit Jesus' kingdom. Additionally, there will still be many nations of Gentiles present on the earth after Jesus returns. These inhabitants will have survived the tribulation period and the sheep and goats judgment and will have been declared to be sheep. That's to say, they'll be considered to be worthy enough to have not been thrown into the lake of fire with those determined to be considered goats. Just listen to this passage of scripture from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 that pertains to all this. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come you, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Isaiah is talking about life in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. Many of the Gentile people, the non-Jews, who have survived the Great Tribulation will have identified themselves with the Antichrist by taking his mark, which will be required to buy and sell. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 to 18. Anyone depending on buying or selling anything, food, clothing, housing, etc., will be tempted to take this mark. For additional incentive, The penalty imposed by the government of the Antichrist for not taking the mark will be death. Those that take this mark to save themselves, thereby identifying themselves with the Antichrist, will not do well at the sheep and goats judgment. 
This is from Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. It's unknown how many will defy the Antichrist and will not take his mark. We can't know how many will survive by defying such an evil character who controls the governments of this world. Those that do survive and find themselves at the sheep and goats judgment, according to Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, will come from all nations or all people. However, the word used here for nations in Greek is ethne. It's the word that's typically used to express nations other than the nation of Israel. It's from the people of all nations that remain on the earth after the rescue or rapture of the elect of God and after the battle of Armageddon that King Jesus will divide the sheep from the goats. He will decide who will remain and inhabit the earth along with the 144,000 descendants of Israel that have been miraculously protected. Let's move on to Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 33 tells us that the sheep are the ones that have been separated and placed on the right-hand side of the king. In verse 34, we learn that even though this group had not been rescued by Jesus earlier with the elect, that they, like the church that has previously been raptured, are also considered blessed by God. Those considered to be sheep will be rewarded by being invited to inherit the kingdom prepared for them. At this point in the future, the kingdom means a literal earthly kingdom. It's the kingdom heaven, which is no longer just in heaven, but it's that which Jesus has brought with him to this world. This is the same world that's referred to in verse 34, where it says foundation of the world. This kingdom will bring about the world that from the foundation of the world was designed and created by God to support. Any survivors of God's judgment that had taken the mark of the Antichrist will be counted among the goats and will not inherit the new earthly kingdom. Next, we learn of the specific criteria that Jesus uses for the selection of those who he places on his right, who will inherit the kingdom. This is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me sick, and you looked out for me in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And the king will answer them, saying, 
Believe me when I tell you, that inasmuch as you did it for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. So far within this parable, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man, a shepherd, and now Lord and King. It's clear this parable is about him and an event that takes place upon his return. Jesus gives a list of physical acts of love, hospitality, providing food, drink, clothing, visiting the sick, visiting the incarcerated. Initially, Jesus makes it sound as though these things were done directly for him. Eventually, Jesus clarifies in the parable that when these things were done for a group of people known as his brethren, that it was the same as doing these things directly for Jesus. Three of the needs that Jesus has enumerated are very basic, scoring in the top seven in Maslow's hierarchy of physiological needs, food, water, and clothing. The other three needs have more to do with meeting emotional human needs, visiting someone in prison, taking in strangers, and visiting or caring for the sick. I don't believe that this was intended to be a comprehensive list of everything that someone should feel obligated to do for others. I think Jesus was conveying the spirit of what he was talking about. He could have just as easily added, When I was depressed, you cheered me up. When my car was broken down, you gave me a ride. When I couldn't buy or sell because I wouldn't take the mark of the beast, you traded with me. And when I was fleeing the Antichrist, you hid me. After listening to all the loving things that the king lists that they did, the righteous, or the sheep, who have been separated out to the right-hand side, asked the question of the king. They did so as if his statements about what they had done for him surprised them. To paraphrase, When did we ever do any of these kind things for you that you're saying that we did, your majesty? After all, we just met. The king answers that whenever the righteous did it for, quote, One of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me, unquote acts towards the brethren of Jesus equate with acts done towards Jesus himself. Who are the brethren of Jesus? All humankind? Is this parable simply about following the golden rule? Those whom treat others as they want to be treated will inherit the kingdom of God? Wouldn't that then mean that the people could obtain salvation by merely treating others in this manner? Does this scripture support salvation through works? Can we do our way into heaven? The brothers of Christ may be the 144,000 descendants of Israel who are sealed with God's protection and left on the earth during the outpouring of God's wrath. The group of sheep may be like those who lived in Nazi Germany and surrounding nations uh, under Nazi control in World War II who hid Jews in their attics, fed them, and helped them to escape. This is the view of Robert Van Campen in his book, The Sign. Certainly, the brothers of Christ would include any descendant of Israel left on earth after Jesus has returned. But in my opinion, that definition is a little too narrow. Anyone who is going to inherit eternal life and partake of Jesus' kingdom would likely be considered the brethren of Christ. Anyone, male or female. Anyone who is to be counted righteous in the end is part of that brotherhood. I would include all the sheep in that group along with the descendants of the tribes of Israel who are on the earth during the day of the Lord. Perhaps even before the day of the Lord, during the tribulation period when 
the brethren of Christ are being persecuted at the hands of the Antichrist. I may restate this a couple of times, but make no mistake, this is a works-based judgment. It's a judgment based on how you treat the brethren of Christ. Specifically during this period of time, when the church and the remnant of Jews are under severe persecution. Perhaps the most popular interpretation of this parable is that it applies to the entire church age we're currently living in, and not just the end of the age. As though we will be all judged according to this works-based judgment criteria. The brothers of Christ, according to this view, are any people who are in need. Howard Clark Key, contributing author to the Interpreter's One-Volume Commentary on the Bible, says that some interpreters believe that this verse originally only applied to the disciples that were received in Christ's name, but that now it applies to all mankind, or anyone who is in need. Well, Surely those descendants of Israel, which are sealed by God and remain on the earth after the rapture, will be counted among the sheep, But who else might be? There's nothing in what Jesus is saying here that would hint at this group being judged having already been declared righteous due to being saved by grace. Clearly, this group is being judged, in essence, according to the law, based on their works alone. In this judgment, not doing good works results in eternal punishment. From what we know of the whole counsel of the Bible, The sheep and goats judgment criteria is not part of the good news, (laughs) whereby one becomes saved in the age we live in. It's only by the grace of God that anyone is saved, and not by works, lest anyone should boast. The people symbolized by sheep that will be subjected to this judgment will have been alive during the time of the Antichrist and not taken his mark. They will have lived under fear of persecution since the penalty for not taking the mark will be death. This group will have survived the outpouring of God's wrath on the earth. Christians are not appointed to suffer God's wrath. In the middle of all the tribulation at the hand of the Antichrist and God's judgment being poured out on the earth, this group of sheep will manage to serve the needs of the brethren of Christ. Jesus will reward their good behavior. Despite this group not being worthy of eternal salvation when Jesus came to rescue his church at the rapture, this group is now found worthy of inheriting the kingdom according to the sheep and goats judgment criteria. They will inherit that kingdom, not in eternal resurrected bodies, but as normal, well-seasoned human survivors of the tribulation and outpouring of God's wrath. What a story they'll have to tell. It seems reasonable, even necessary, that these people have had a change of heart after Jesus returned, and that the church was rescued. Scripture indicates that most will turn away from God with hardened hearts, and believe the lies of the Antichrist after God's wrath has begun to be poured out on the earth. Yet, the sheep and goat's judgment story seems to indicate that there will be some who turn to God and live in fear of Him. Perhaps this group of righteous people are the ones who have responded to the proclaiming of the eternal gospel by the angel mentioned in Revelation 14, 6-7. It's through responding to the eternal gospel that this group of sheep manifests their belief in and respect for the Almighty 
through works that are consistent with the fear of God. First, they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And secondly, they love their neighbors as themselves. That's precisely Jesus' summation of all the Old Testament writings. It's clear that anyone who followed after the Antichrist will be declared to be a goat and separated out to the left and be sentenced accordingly. It's also clear that the criteria for being a sheep is not that you are a born-again Christian, because any true followers of Christ had already been declared to be an elect child of God and raptured prior to that point. The criteria for being separated out to the favored right-hand side of the shepherd at this judgment, beyond showing kindness to the brethren of Jesus, is finally recognizing that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and King of the world. Jesus will be recognized for being the one the New Testament of the Bible declares that he is, God in human form. This is from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 to 24. Look unto me, and be you saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. That's Isaiah 45, 22 to 24. Listen to the similarity with this passage found in Romans 14, 10 to 12. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set and not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's Romans 14, 10-12. Naturally, having feared God, seeing Jesus miraculously return in awesome splendor, they would, this is the sheep, recognize him for who he is, God, and bend their knee and their will to him. And that will result in eternal salvation. Now let's talk about the goats. Just as those that do good things for the brethren of Christ will do it vicariously for Jesus, those that will do wrong by doing nothing for the brethren of Christ will be considered as having done nothing for Jesus. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 to 45. Then he also said to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. And I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't come see me. And then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of your needs? Then he will answer them saying, Believe me when I tell you, Insomuch as you did not do one of these things to the least of these, you did not do it for me. Lack of taking action can result in what we know as sin. Apathy, or standing by and doing nothing while the brothers of Christ are in need, will net the goats who are on the left of the king, 
eternal punishment. As this scripture points out, this is true even if you call Jesus Lord. A title such as Lord is just a word, unless it has appropriate actions or righteous intentions behind it. According to this parable, if we're to believe there is an eternal life, we must also believe that there is eternal punishment. For those who say that the eternal punishment will not last forever, it's important to consider that the same word for eternal is used for both eternal life and eternal punishment. If it doesn't really mean eternal punishment, how can it then really mean eternal life? we got to be careful about arguing against eternal damnation. Why this is so important is to point out that we are clearly talking about eternity future, and more importantly, that however, quote, long eternity lasts, it applies to both punishment for the wicked and life for the righteous. Some would like to believe that souls will not be eternally punished, but instead be destroyed in the lake of fire. To think that God would show some mercy by destroying a soul rather than punish one forever makes him easier for some to sell to unbelievers. How could a good God torment souls for eternity? Surely, the merciful thing to do would be to put them out of their misery and simply destroy them. However, taking this route of interpretation regarding eternal punishment is taking Scripture where our human minds want to go, rather than allowing Scripture to take our human minds where the truth appears to lead. Being creatures and not the Creator, we have a finite sense of justice and when showing mercy is appropriate. Despite how any human would view it, God is most merciful. I will choose to trust God's judgment and not my own or some other human sense of what is right, even if eternal punishment really means forever. Let's move on. Chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Just as in the parable of the talents, where the lazy and wicked servant who failed to show love to others was assigned a place in hell, so also are these goats that fail to do the same. What's this parable mean for Christians? Visiting the imprisoned, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked are all great ways to spend our talents that we talked about in the previous podcast, or plainly speaking, show the love of Christ. All these things Jesus is talking about would be great demonstrations that we understand the golden rule, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves, or to do to others as we would like to have done to us. As great as all these activities are to communicate the love of Jesus, the eternal salvation of followers of Christ will not be determined by whether or not they do these things. The elect of God the ecclesia or church, will not be judged according to the criteria of the sheep and goats judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, or so Romans 8.1 tells us. Because the elect of God have been bought with a great price by Jesus, they will have been previously declared righteous and gathered to Him. The sheep and goats judgment takes place after the rapture of the church, at the very end of the tribulation period, after the wrath of God has been poured out on the earth. It will indeed be a judgment based on works or the actions 
that the involved people took in their lives. Some may notice similarities between the parable of the talents and the sheep and goats judgment. Jesus plays the part of the master in the parable of the talents and is the judge presiding over the sheep and goats judgment. In both stories, Jesus goes away for a long time. In both stories, Jesus returns and makes judgments of people based on what they've done in his absence. In both stories, people are seemingly either rewarded or penalized based on their actions. From these similarities, it would be very easy to lump the two stories together and assume they're basically saying the same thing. However, apart from these things I just mentioned, I believe they are two separate stories for very good reasons. First, please note the dissimilarities between the two stories. In the parable of the talents, the master places the servants in charge of his affairs. The servants know they are servants and what's expected of them. When Jesus left the earth, he left those that knew they were his followers, his disciples, behind to take care of his affairs in his absence. He gave them responsibilities to care for and be in charge of many things. Yet there is no indication that the people that are gathered from all over the world who are compared to sheep and goats ever previously considered themselves to be under the authority of Jesus. In the parable of the talents, the expectation for the servants is that they will act in a wise manner with what they have been given. There are no specific instructions or lists of rules. In the end, they're either declared to have been faithful servants or they're considered to have been no servant at all. Those who are servants of Jesus were chosen and purchased by Jesus. They act as faithful servants because they are called to be faithful. It's their new character and nature. False servants will be found out by the master and he deals with them. The people that stand in front of Jesus in the sheep and goats judgment will be judged according to a list of behaviors as if they are being held accountable to some form of law. It's as though the sheep and goats judgment is intended to determine who's a good person rather than someone who has relied on grace for salvation and then become a good servant. Good and faithful servants are placed in charge of many things and enter into the joy of their master. This is consistent with being a co- or joint heir with Jesus and ruling and reigning with him. Sheep, on the other hand, are invited to inherit the kingdom prepared for them. That is, they're allowed to enter a kingdom of Jesus, which will have been brought to this earth. There's nothing indicating that they will be joint heirs with Jesus or ruling and reigning with Jesus in that future kingdom. They will continue to be ruled over. If not for including all the stories and parables contained in the Olivet Discourse, one or more groups of people would have been left out of the epic end of this age story. The Olivet Discourse, along with parallel passages of prophetic scripture, contains information for all of those living on the earth at the end of the age. This includes the descendants of Abraham, the church, and the lost. It includes information for those who are removed from the earth before God's wrath, those who go through God's wrath, those who are found worthy to inhabit the earth at the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Jesus, as well as those who will not be found worthy. The Olivet Discourse tells us that just after the sign in the sun, moon, and stars, the elect of God, or his faithful servants, will be raptured. 
The parable of the talents tells us that they'll be put in charge of many things and enter into the joy of the Lord. In the parable of the talents, the Olivet Discourse tells us that people were servants or Christians in name only. They'll be found out and be treated like the rest of the unbelievers. In the parable of the ten virgins and related passages in the book of Revelation, we see the faithful remnant of the tribes of Israel receive God's divine protection from the Antichrist and God's judgment as they are left on the earth. The sheep and goats judgment gives us the judgment criteria for the non-elect of God who were not raptured, but that are still alive at the end of the tribulation period, after God's wrath has been poured out. According to Scripture and Revelation, those who have taken the mark of the beast will be thrown into the lake of fire. According to the Olivet Discourse, the rest will be judged based on their behavior. The sheep will inhabit the new millennial kingdom of Jesus. The goats will be cast into everlasting fire. I have never heard anyone else teach this, but it's so important for you to consider closely. These are three different parables, all having to do with the end of the age, that are each targeting three different specific groups of people. Because many don't understand this, I've heard each of these parables terribly misused on many different occasions, especially the sheep and goats judgment parable. Jesus ended his discourse on his return and the end of the age by reminding his disciples that he, just like the master in his parables, was about ready to leave them. This is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. And it came about that when Jesus had finished saying all of this, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover will be here, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. All of these parables about a master going away should have made sense to the disciples at this point as their master reminds them that in only two days he indeed is going away by means of crucifixion. In summary, the parable of the sheep and goat judgment builds on the parable of the talents. In both parables, those that choose to ignore the needs of others and show love were penalized with eternal torment. The Son of Man in this parable is Jesus. The sheep in this parable are identified as those that have shown love towards the brethren of Christ through meeting at least some of their physical needs. For their actions, this group is promised to inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God they will be inheriting starts with the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus on this earth. The goats in this parable stand for the unrighteous who stood by and took no action to help the brethren of Christ. The goats will also certainly include those who aligned themselves with the Antichrist and took his mark during the tribulation period. The sheep and goats judgment takes place after Jesus returns, but before the new millennial kingdom begins. It's not to be confused with the second great white throne judgment that will take place at the end of the millennial kingdom. The sheep and goats judgment is reserved for those who survive to the end of the great tribulation period. It's there that Jesus, as judge, will determine who will be the first inhabitants of the millennial kingdom besides the 144,000 descendants of the tribe of Israel, who are already selected for that honor. Although this parable may be a good lesson to all Christians throughout time concerning what Jesus considers to be good works, this specific sheep and goats judgment and the people involved does not appear to deal with the church, which will have already been raptured. 
This is a judgment that's based on the things that people do on earth, rather than a judgment based on what Jesus did for those who he called, bought, and purchased with his blood. Jesus is coming back, just as he said he would. When he does, he will rescue his followers and then clean up the mess we've all made. (laughs) This will involve judgment. The judge will generously reward those he declares to be righteous. However, the penalties for not following Christ will be stiff, endless, relentless punishment and torment. Next time, I'll wrap up this series on what Jesus had to say to his disciples on the Mount of Olives regarding his return and the end of this age. And I'll talk a little bit about where we go from here. Until then, God bless, be at peace, stay watchful, and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.